With all the critiques of the European Union lately, some well-deserved, it helps to remember why it was started in the first place. No territory in the world is immune from war, but I think European countries will generally not find themselves fighting each other, and in great part thanks to the European Union. Coming up, Hilburn Byers provides us a Brussels perspective on how the EU works. We'll also explore the advantages women can enjoy when traveling solo in another country. As a woman, I can meet children, families. I can connect through little toddlers or, or five-year-olds, and I have something in common being a mom. And Teresa Bruce proves to us that you can go back, even if it's been decades. Tears welled up in his eyes, and he said, Teresita, look what has come back to me. She tells us what she found on a redo of a childhood road trip down the Pan American Highway. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. It was a defining road trip for her family. Coming up in a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Teresa Bruce tells us how she was able to recreate the bumpy journey her family took when she was only seven years old, a trip that took her thousands of miles south on the Pan American Highway. And a panel of travel experts address the fears and challenges many women face when considering a solo vacation. They share their own tips for making it work on your own. Let's start the hour with a look at the issues making news in European politics from the cosmopolitan vantage point of Brussels. It's the hometown of our politically-minded guest, Hilburn Buys. Brussels is also where the primary governing departments of the EU are located. Hilburn joins us now to look at the challenges the European Union is facing in a national capital that has its own struggles, trying to keep Belgium's distinct French and Flemish-speaking cultures from splitting the country apart. Hilburn, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Hilburn, would you agree with how I characterize the challenges the national leaders of Belgium have to address to keep their country together? I don't believe it's struggling to stay together, but um, it's, it is a country where it's quite often said about. So there's a challenge between the Walloons and the Flemish. What, what, what is the basis of the, of the discussion there? The basis is that we have two regions with different economies and also a different culture. The result of this is that there is a movement in favor of separatism on one of the sides. You mentioned how you've got, you know, a discussion about these Flemish-speaking and French-speaking, and it's likely not going to happen, but there are people that want to break Belgium apart. I've always thought the European Union celebrates the ethnic regions, making it less necessary for Catalans and Basque people and Walloons to want independence. Yet this year, we've got this discussion in Belgium. We've got the Catalans making noise in Spain. Whatever happened to this notion that Madrid is not threatened by Catalan breaking apart because it's all Europe and you can't secede from Europe? I regret to say that it's a deep misunderstanding of what's allowed in Europe. And in fact, when you leave a country, it's all very nice to claim your independence. You also leave the European Union. Now, imagine... Oh, so that's, so if, if Catalan breaks away, they don't just get to say, oh, we're a different um, part of the EU. Yes. They've got to earn their way back into the European Union, like the Scots would have if the Scottish people broke away. Precisely. Now, if you allow me to use the Catalans as an example, they would leave Spain. Now, people can celebrate this as an exaltation of national self-determination. They would leave Spain. They would also leave the European Union. Now, how do you convince Spain that they can still be our friends if we say, oh, well, Catalonia broke away, we're not going to punish them, and they're going to join the European Union as a separate entity? How are we going to convince France that we're going to deal with their capital and not start working with the Corsicans separately? So it's more complicated than you might realize. In fact, maybe even the separatists realize there's a, a reality that they got to reckon with, and they'll give it another thought and... 
you know, they might decide to work for more autonomy but stay within the country. They had a great deal of autonomy. They've lost it, alas, certain legal crackdown that took place after the in, referendum that in they Catalan. had in Catalonia. Yeah. Yes. The shame of it is that it was a, nobody's innocent in this, but it was a particularly indelicate move for other European countries with similar challenges. Yes. There is indeed at the European level one institution separate from the principal institutions called the Committee of the Regions. Uh That's where regions can go and have their representation, have their input, which is later going to be introduced in the larger cycle of things. So their voices, with a reasonable estimate, their voice is fairly heard. Precisely. Now, what is Brussels' relationship with the EU? Why is Brussels the capital of the European Union? It's a three, four hundred million people. Why Brussels? At the end of the Second World War, a small portion in the south of Germany was turned into an international zone. That was suggested, proposed as a place to introduce a European capital. It was the Chancellor of Germany that preferred to reunify Germany that set a program in motion to find a new capital for. So this goes all the way back to right after World War II, this notion that there would be some kind of a European Union. Precisely. So they had quite a vision. Yes. And and is it kind of like, well, it doesn't want to be France and it doesn't want to be Germany because we're trying to rise above these power centers. It's sort of a, a neutral, less strategic, less superpower country. The truth is that at the time they were considering a small bureaucracy for a little-known institution, which would later become the European Union. Oh, so this and is would, more of a nobody was interested. A tr- uh, economic sort of thing, trade policy, and so on. Yes, it starts with a, generally a, a trade agreement. Belgium really wanted to introduce that and bring it to Liège, or one of our secondary cities in in Belgium, and so it was King uh, Baldwin who uh, was able to convince the European powers to bring it to Belgium. And 50 years later or whatever, the EU has come a long way. Absolutely. And Brussels finds itself really with a lot more impact, making a lot more laws than they might have originally envisioned. Oh, absolutely. So it turned from being a trade agreement to being a political union. To the point where you drove, uh, you kind of drove Britain away from a lot of people who vote for Brexit because they felt too many laws were being made by a parliament, including Polish representatives on on how people are going to plant their crops in Cornwall and do their fishing in Wales. 80% of um, what national parliaments do is uh, transposing European directives into national law. Is that right? 80% comes as a directive from the European Union, and the rest of the 20% is what they retain as a sovereign individual laws that they make themselves. So the EU is is really a behemoth all over Europe as far as who's making the laws and and how are they uh, written and so on. We're getting a perspective on issues Europeans are facing on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is Hilburn Weiss from Brussels. That's where he's a university lecturer on history and diplomacy. In between assignments, Hilburn guides tourists around the Low Countries and can be reached through the website tastethecity.be. Well, this has been quite a tumultuous couple of years uh, in the EU. Uh, We've got Brexit, we've got... uh, the threat of Marie Le Pen in, in France, who lost. We've got Poland and Hungary going kind of like the European vision of uh, President Trump. What's your view on, on the state of the European Union now? The principal failure, principal difficulty with the EU is a failure for us to introduce a European constitution. This was in 2004 by referendum in those countries where it was necessary. France and the Netherlands voted against it. And so instead... The Lisbon Treaty has introduced a similar form, but not necessarily a simplified constitution. And since then, what we find is people have been losing confidence in the European Union. So the constitution, by the laws of the European Union, would it have to be accepted uh, unanimously? 
every country has different rules. Some, in some cases, this could simply be accepted by the top diplomats of a country. In certain nations, such as uh, Britain, France, and the Netherlands, it had to go through referendum, and there it failed. So each country had to accept it with its own people, with, with a referendum with its, or, or, with, its or their, rep, with their own rules. I remember reading that constitution or, or reading about it, and it was, it was like, who let the hippies loose? I mean, it was so politically correct and inclusive and modern and idealistic and loving. It was also long and hairy. And long and hairy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was long and complex because so many different values had to be introduced to keep everybody happy that it didn't make sense to people who read it. It's not so 10 it's just, points. It was, it was or, overreaching. It was overreaching. Is there a chance that they would come up with a, with a reasonable, um, underreaching constitution that everybody could say, sure, why not? No, that's finished. But I think what we can do is find a way to introduce shared values. We have to define what a European is, and I think that that'll define itself. My hunch is that the Brexit issue, the Brexit um, stress within the European Union, is kind of a wake-up call that um, Europe has to be a little more tuned into national interests, and maybe there's a limit to how much it can grow. Perhaps losing Britain is not an existential threat to the European Union. It's just saying, hey, it's not supposed to be that widespread. Yes. At the um, end of the Cold War, a number of new candidates appeared for the European Union, and that gave Europe the dilemma of whether it was important to deepen or to widen. And the answer was that now or then was the opportunity to widen and that they would deepen later. But of course, the wider you are, the more, ter- more territories and countries... The harder have it is to deepen. ...to deepen the political union. how many million people live in Poland? 70, let's say, it was one of the most populous countries in, in Europe, but it's, 50, 60, 70 million people. It's com- comparable to France and Germany. Yeah. And all of a sudden, that changes the whole dynamic of the parliament in Brussels. Precisely. Overnight, 100 million communists become capitalists and join the EU. Yes. That, that wasn't really anticipated. Well, they, they weren't communists, fortunately. Well, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Left their communist government. Yes, absolutely. And we are very happy to have our Eastern European friends in the European Union. And I'm speaking now from an emotional point of view. Right. The difficulty is now to govern all that territory and to reconcile all the different values that we have. These are people who fought socialism for 90 years, or 45 years in certain cases. Right. And the rest of Western Europe has a tradition of labor unions and of socialized market economy. And these are very difficult to reconcile. The Poles reject anything that resembles a planned economy, whereas in France and in Germany, a number oh. of people really want to hold on to their to their social victories. So, so these are different societal views uh, about, yes. about what the government should be. And yes. maybe that's irreconcilable. So that's a tough challenge. You know, I was just in Den Haag, the capital of the Netherlands, and I understand there used to be a lot of lobbyists there, and those offices are empty now. And there's a lot of lobbyists that have gravitated down to Brussels, the capital of the EU. I understand there's more lobbyists in Brussels than there are in Washington, D.C. even. There are. Lobbyists are part of the political process. But I read also that the rules, the laws are being essentially written by business interests in the lobbyists, which caused me to really be a little disillusioned about the idealism of the European Union. Is that an issue that it's not the people, but it's the businesses who hire the lobbyists that are writing the laws that are shaping the societies in Europe now because of the EU? That's sort of an apocalyptic view of it. With the Treaty of Maastricht in 1992, the European Parliament was created. With the creation of the European Parliament, Europe also decided to institutionalize the role of 
lobbyists. Lobbyists were going to be part of the governing system because we wouldn't be able to get rid of them anyway. So we may, may as well include them. So there's a mechanism to register as a lobbyist. You must. Lobbyists do indeed combine forces with the people of various industries that know the most about a certain subject that they can introduce papers that go through Parliament and then are going to be disassembled and reassembled by the European Commission. And debated, before. debated by the parliamentarians and so on. Precisely. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Hilburn Baez about the European Union from a Brussels perspective. Hilburn, thank you so much for helping me sort out this fascinating, ongoing story about Europe's, Europe's adventure in, in living together. I suppose the big triumph of the European Union is that the economies of Germany and France are woven together, so they're not going to have a big war, and Europe has a free trade zone that lets it better compete with the rest of the world. Can that be kind of summing up what the European Union is all about? No territory in the world is immune from war, but I think European countries will generally not find themselves fighting each other. Thanks, at least in part. And in great part, thanks to the European Union. All right. Best wishes, Hilburn, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Teresa Bruce's father wanted their family road trip to cover 16,000 miles from the little town of Banks, Oregon, all the way to the tip of South America. But the trip ended when they broke down in Bolivia. Teresa joins us in just a bit to tell us what she found when recreating that trip 30 years later. But first, a panel of women travel guides to Europe looks at the challenges and rewards awaiting women who adventure out into the world on their own. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. Sometimes I like to fly solo and experience a city without a travel partner. It's great not to stand out so much as a tourist and to be able to blend in better with the locals. But the more I explore the world, the more I've come to realize that I have a distinct advantage. As a man, solo travel has always been an option for my gender without much worry or fear. But what about for women? I've been inspired over the years by women who travel safe, happy, and solo, and we're joined by three such travelers today on Travel with Rick Steves. Anna Piperado, based in Siena, Sarah Murdoch, and Lisa Friend are all expert guides who have spent a lot of time on the road, and they know how to do it right. They join us now for a look at how to enjoy solo travel with advice tailored especially for women. Sarah, Lisa, Anna, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Thank you. Grazie. Thanks. So let's review the pros. Why would you travel solo? Is it worth the trouble? Isn't it safer and, and more relaxing to travel with a travel partner? When you travel alone, why would you travel that way? Sarah? I love traveling by myself, actually, because I can do whatever I want. I can go and stay in a museum for three hours if I wish. I don't have to ask anybody's permission. I can go shopping. I can spend as much time on those secret little things. Everybody, I think, has secret little things they love doing. They don't want other people to know that they do. Mm -hmm. So I can spend hours in any museum I want or shop or it's my agenda. And not worry about your travel partner being bored or wanting to do something else. Yeah. It forces you into a journey of self-exploration. You are the one who has to make all of the decisions, all of the itinerary decisions. Where do you want to go? So you look inward and think, what do I really want? You don't have to compromise with anyone else. Don't you think a lot of women might not do it because they think it's reckless or dangerous? It would absolutely be needless for them to think that because we're far safer in Europe and I'm far more comfortable as a woman walking around alone. Rome, 11 o'clock at night, people are out. I'm fine. I only worry about pickpockets. So this is interesting. You, you need to worry about petty pickpocketing and purse snatching, and 
I found that's more of a concern in the streets of Europe than than here, just because thieves are out targeting the tourist. But from a violent crime point of view, you feel safe as a woman on the street after dark. I feel much safer there. Sarah, what are your rules of thumb that way from a safety point of view? Well, I just want to start by saying that I get a lot of emails on my blog from women who feel it's too scary and intimidating to go. And in terms of being out on the street, I am very tall, and so I've never really felt intimidated. But I think we all have that little sense in the back of our mind, something that tickles us when something's not quite right. Mm -hmm. And it's smart to just walk away from those situations. I also tend to stay in the evenings in the heart of a city where we have bright lights and things like that. You don't venture out into weird parts of the city. And, you know, if you're talking to somebody and somebody invites you to go somewhere, just think Think about what would your mother say about that? <laughs> if you are a traveler and you're just amazed at how friendly this person is, maybe there's some reason that you should be on guard. Well, and particularly, I think women, especially, you know, women who may be attractive or younger, mm-hmm. are going to attract that kind of attention. And so it might help to dress a little more conservatively mm-hmm. and to just sort of play it a little closer to the vest. Don't maybe be quite as open in invitations, that sort of a thing. Uh, and just listen, would your mom be okay with that? So part of the mark of a good trip is how many people do you meet? Yes. And and when you're out and about, especially if you're single, you're more approachable. Lisa, when you're alone, far away from home, how do you deal with loneliness? How do you meet people? I often will approach children, which is not a creepy thing. But as a woman, I can meet children, families. I can connect through little toddlers or or five-year-olds. And I have something in common being a mom. I'm traveling in Europe on my own. But I have that connection of moms. And so there's no tension when you're trying to speak another language to a five-year-old. They're very forgiving. (laughs) That's a very good point. And just turning that around, I remember when we were traveling with toddlers in Europe, it was a great social connection. People love to talk about your, oh, and there's kids cute. Let's talk, you know. So if you are, especially if you're a woman, you can talk to little kids and nobody's going to get all all freaked out and so on. So good, good tip. It's Travel with Rick Steves, and our panel of travel guides includes Anna Piperato, Lisa Friend, and Sarah Murdoch. Anna is an American-born tour guide based in Tuscany. She moved to Italy to complete her graduate thesis on St. Catherine of Siena, which is now the city she calls home. Lisa Friend specializes in family tours of Europe and has been a travel consultant at Rick Steves Europe for 15 years. In between leading tours of Europe and Southeast Asia, Sarah Murdoch blogs travel tips at adventureswithsarah.net. Patricia's listening in from Milwaukee, Oregon, and joins us on the line at 877-333-7425. Patricia, what's your experience with traveling on your own? I traveled for many years for business by myself, but I find that traveling for vacation is a bit different. And in regard to your uh, comment about being lonely, What I found is that when I'm in the need of more human interaction than just talking to a stranger in a restaurant or or to a small child or trying out my foreign language skills, I found it really helpful to book myself for, say, a walking tour or a cooking class or a food tour where I'm with a group for a a prolonged period of time. That, That helps a great deal. Everybody's nodding yes. here. and Because I'm traveling alone a lot, too, not as a woman, but as a man. And it's the same thing. I'm kind of lonely. It's dinner. I don't want to sit in a nice restaurant all alone. For $30 more than the cost of a nice dinner, you can take a food tour. 
And okay, budget it as dinner plus uh, a little entertainment and a tour. And it's a beautiful deal. And not only do you go to six or eight little hole-in-the-wall artisan local foodie places, but you also get to be friends with a local guide who loves his or her work. And you're hanging out with six or eight other tourists, and it gives you that beautiful social connection. Uh, this is a, a beautiful idea, but you just have to take the initiative and book these things. And Lisa, I would say it's it's reasonable to think there's a food tour in any city you would go to these days. Every city, yeah. They're easy to find through the tourist information office or a good guidebook. Yeah. Also, just because of the evenings, I think, are a little bit more difficult for women mm-hmm. to figure out how to be safe and how to be out in the city alone. That's a really wonderful way to do it. Um, you can also find shows and things like that, but also finding just a really nice restaurant and people watching. Now, how do you do that? Sitting in a restaurant alone, enjoying yourself, yeah. do you attract people when you just want to be alone? Is that sort of an issue? Or how, how do you make it look like you are there intentionally instead of there stranded? Well, this is the thing that's kind of funny because I think that women, a lot of times, there's this sense of you're by yourself and how sad is that? But I actually kind of enjoy sitting and, you know, I'll bring a book maybe or a sketchbook. A sketchbook is a really cool way if you draw at all. If you sit in a restaurant with a sketchbook and you sketch the scene People will come and talk to you, and you'll be able to have a really nice experience of of recording what you're looking at at the same time. That's a great idea. So So you've got some business. If you're not artistic like Sarah, you can also journal. Yeah. When I want a really fine meal, I might be uncomfortable going to a really nice restaurant in the evening by myself, but I'll book it for lunch. It helps me save some money, Mm -hmm. but also I don't have that same feeling of missing out on romance. And then I might have a light picnic for dinner. That's a very good idea. And there's also lots of things to do after hours on the streets of these cities and uh, museums that are open late and so on that gives you a purpose to be out after dark but not alone. A lot of times in different countries, and it varies from country to country, a woman out alone after dark is misunderstood. People might think she's either a prostitute or just looking for some kind of action. Just a woman on her own. What is her? What is her agenda? What's she after? Or what? Yeah, men don't have that problem. No, but but that is something that. Now, how do you? how do you mitigate that? You just go back and do your thing. And that's, again, that's, it's a real confidence builder, as we've, we've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And I, I never would have, I wouldn't go around Boston or Seattle so much on my own, but mm-hmm. Rome, no problem. Paris, yeah, bring it on. London, mm-hmm. I'm there. You have to choose your neighborhoods carefully. Oh, and you also want to wear sunglasses. Because we as American women are raised to use direct eye contact ah. for a man, and that's an invitation in a lot of countries. Oh, so and that smiling to strangers. Yes. Yes. So smiling at strangers, mm-hmm. getting eye contact. Yeah. But her, her point about confidence is important because I think travel is a very big confidence builder, but being a confident person out on the streets, if you look like you know where you're going yeah. and you're busy, people yeah. are not going to bother you. So I don't think that this is an issue people should be concerned about, right. no matter who you are. If you're, you know where you're going, people won't bother you. Or you pretend to know where you're going. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Anna, if uh, you're eating alone at night, what do you do to enjoy the experience? Well, sometimes they see, oh, are you alone? And you say, yes. Uh, and they ask if you can be sat with other people. And sometimes you're forced to socially interact. Sometimes you can say, no, I'd prefer to be on my own. But right. it's happened to me many times where I've sat with people or, you know, I've had to ask for the salt at the other table. Yeah. And I'm still friends with these people 15 years later. Patricia, I hope that gives you some ideas. Yes, it does. Okay. Hey, thanks for the call. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking women traveling solo, and we're talking with women who know how to travel solo. Sarah Murdoch, Lisa Friend, and Anna Piperato. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Marty is calling from Atlanta. Hi, Marty. Hi there. Thanks so much. It's good to speak with you, and Sarah, i got to thank you. You are my packing light sensei. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I've, I've seen your blogs. I turned into an accidental solo 
female traveler a few years ago. I was going to meet some friends in Amsterdam, and the plane I needed to change in um, Paris. And I thought, oh, wow, I've never been to Paris, you know, thinking about a layover. It was an award ticket, and they next award flight they had to Amsterdam was eight days. And I thought, eight days? This was only my second international trip, and I was doing it alone in a language that I didn't know, and I just went for it, and I'm so glad I did, because now I'm totally in love with solo travel. Hmm. I love my husband, (laughs) and I love the freedom of traveling alone, and I've, I've done a lot of it. I've been to Italy a few times, and Germany, and Austria, Croatia, and then I got really adventurous, and I went to Cambodia by myself, and I just really, I'm glad this topic is being discussed, and I encourage everyone listening, and I encourage my friends and colleagues to do it. Just do it. So, Marty, let's just talk about a few of the potential cons, the disadvantages of traveling alone. Don't you end up paying a lot extra money by having a single room rather than two people sharing a double? You know, um, the reason I was going to Amsterdam was I was sharing a room on a bicycle and boat trip uh, with a friend, Mm -hmm. and that is more expensive for sure. Mm -hmm. And so I will find rooms that are within my budget. I love staying in convents in Italy. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't spend the money on the bed because, you know, I want to be there and experience the culture. So I haven't found that it's, prohibitive. I've even rented cars in Italy. Of course, I always end up paying the tickets when I get home, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) I don't find it prohibitive. It's actually, you know what it is? If I want to be chintzy with myself, I can do it. If I'm traveling with my husband, he's likely to grumble. Also, women, I mean, anybody can stay in a place that charges per bed instead of per room, like you're talking about a convent. That would probably mm-hmm. be all singles. You've got uh, youth hostels, you've got mountain huts. There's plenty of organizations that rent out rooms where you share a room. You can go on Airbnb and find a cheap single room. And then one beautiful thing about if you're a woman traveling alone, if you stay in a hostel or at the Y, you've got a whole community of people there that are all, a lot of them are also single travelers, and then you have that built-in sort of camaraderie. I also wanted exactly. to just say, Marty, you're, you're married then, right? <laughs> I caught I that. Am. And the thing that came up in my mind is that a lot of times women who are married think they can't travel solo because they really have to wait for their husband to go with them. But I really want to just tell people that Marty's a great example. Mm-hmm. If you're married and your husband doesn't want to go, you can still go. Oh, it's mm-hmm. okay. And there are lots of women out there who are married who go on their own. It's really okay. And above all, I think that what's important is to give women the encouragement to strike out and do it on their own. You can do it. You and I think you're doing your husband a favor by exercising <laughs> that freedom because everybody gets a little break and you get that out of your system. Definitely. Exactly. We come home and we're happier to see each other again. <laughs> and I wanted to say one other thing. I worry about traveling alone and having an ATM eat my card. 
That happened or, to me. What's happened to me? Or me have, too. Mm-hmm. Is that or you guys? Oh, every time I put my card into one of those ATM machines, I'm worried about it, and I've never had a problem. Now, no. all three of the women it's, here have. Oh, it's so easy. I put my card in, and the machine took it. And my rule of thumb is never use an ATM that is not attached to a bank, and right. always use an ATM during business hours. Because this was mm-hmm. in Florence, I put my card in, it didn't come out. I simply walked in the door of the bank. I told the bank manager, the ATM has my card. This was the best part. They went and opened up the back of the ATM machine and about a hundred cards cascaded out of the back and he flipped through them and was like, is that yours? Is that yours? Is that?" And then oh I, my picked, goodness. I picked my ATM card out of the stack. <laughs> it is an easy thing to retrieve. So that's something you just don't need to be afraid of yes. if you follow the rules. standards. Use one attached to a bank and during business hours. Marty, and Rick, yeah. the other thing that I do is I have a second bank and a second bank ATM card and I carry that inside of my, well, I call it my bra bank. <laughs> <laughs> it's no fair. We don't have you bra don't bank. Get a bra bank. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tiny little silk sleeve that attaches to my bra strap, and, and that really gives me peace of mind. I haven't had an ATM card be eaten, but like everyone else has, you know, it, it happens. So yeah. that's what I do, because if I'm traveling solo, I don't have that travel partner mm-hmm. that can back me up. Uh, traveling solo, and I'm traveling solo all the time, I carry two credit cards. I have one with me, and I bury one in my bag that I leave at the hotel because if I get pickpocketed or something stupid on the streets, I've got a card that's a backup. But I'm careful only to carry two cards because a lot of people carry a lot of cards needlessly. And if you get ripped off, which is, you know, it's not that unusual, you got three times the work to do and uh, three times the headaches if you took those needless cards. Let's going back to what Marty said, complimenting Sarah, because she's also my packing guru. I mean, Mm -hmm. traveling light in every sense, not bringing all your cards, packing smart, packing light, being very mobile because you're the one carrying everything. You haven't got your husband or your friend to help you with your with your cases. So it's really a fun challenge to pack well. Sarah, we're talking about your packing expertise. (laughs) What's a great tip for you on packing for women? Give us a little. Packing for women, my advice is uh, that you should not go by the amount of things in your bag because a lot of women say, I could never pack so light because I need all of these things. It's not about how much you bring. It's about how much the things you bring weigh. And I have a really kind of radical strategy in that way. It's a little different than the way other people suggest packing. And this is how crazy I am. I go through and actually weigh all of my clothes and write the weight with Sharpie on the tag. And that way you can make some really easy choices about mm-hmm. which things weigh a lot because sometimes you'll have two pairs of pants and you can't tell which weighs more. Mm-hmm. Two ounces doesn't sound like a lot, but over the length of your bag, it makes a big difference. I mean, a cotton sweater could weigh half a pound where a cashmere sweater could weigh just a couple of ounces. So you make better choices. And I really think that packing smartly builds that confidence. And I think it's all about confidence. When you have a light bag, you feel in control of things. And when you're not worried about your possessions, right. that's just one other thing about traveling as a solo woman. You don't have to think about Confidence. Hey, less vulnerable. Marty, thanks for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and this is so fun. I I guess uh, I I should learn more about women traveling alone. (laughs) (laughs) I want to just wrap up this beautiful conversation by letting each of you share one tip that would encourage the women who are listening to be comfortable getting out there and uh, enjoying the adventure of uh, empowering yourself through world travel. Uh, Let's start with Anna. Okay, well, I think that doing your research before you leave is really important. Even though you don't have a specific schedule that you have to stick to because you're not traveling with anybody else, knowing what you want to see, how you want to see it, and then just kind of GWTFing it, going with the flow. If you Uh, want to spend five hours in that museum and one minute in that shop, you can do that, or vice versa. Because you're traveling alone. You're the boss. Yes. Sarah. 
I think above all, just remind yourself that you can do this. You've got it. And it, you're not the first person to do it. This is not an anomaly. Women are out there traveling alone. It's just, especially women who are maybe middle-aged. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see a lot of young women out there traveling mm-hmm. alone in, with their YouTube adventure videos. But women my age, I'm 43, and there are women out there in their 40s and 50s and 60s who are doing it. And you mm-hmm. can do it. I swear to you, I promise it'll be okay. And Lisa Friend, you have spent a lot of time traveling solo, and let's say one of your friends is reluctant. What would you explain to them? I'd say that they're going to feel more comfortable there than they would in the United States. Um, From a safety perspective, there are a couple of hard tips. If you're feeling nervous, get a hotel room with a balcony because then you can see the action out your window, but you feel safe. Mm -hmm. You're still part of the scene at night. Wear your money belt like it's a religion and guard your phone. And other Mm -hmm. than that, you're going to be fine. Anna, Sarah, Lisa... Thank you so much. I think you've inspired a lot of women. Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure to bring up this topic. Yes, thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks, Rick. Teresa Bruce says she's been a nomad since she was seven, thanks to parents who just couldn't really put down roots. She tells us about a decisive time in her childhood when her father drove the family to South America and why she decided to make that trip again decades later. Teresa Bruce and the Drive of a Lifetime. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Teresa Bruce was just seven years old when her father packed the family up into a homemade camper and they headed south from Oregon bound for the Pan American Highway. Their goal was to reach the southern tip of South America. Why they left and what happened along the way is all part of a remarkable story. Thirty years later, Teresa and her husband retraced that sometimes treacherous journey along the longest road in the world. She joins us now to tell us about it and about her memoir called The Drive, Searching for Lost Memories on the Pan-American Highway. So, Teresa, what made you want to drive all the way to South America again? I like to say that really what turned out to be the greatest adventure of my life began with the greatest tragedy of my parents. They lost my little brother, John John, in an accident at home. And, you know, everybody responds differently to grief. And my family, my dad in particular, just needed to run, to escape. And so he was a truck driver. He built a camper. And we hit the road. And he just wanted to drive to the end of the world. And I was about six. And my little sister was only two. And we were sort of stowaways in the back seat and along for the ride. And your dad built a homemade camper. Can you just paint a picture of what it's like? It's a family of, of four in a, in a rickety camper and long, uh, treacherous roads. Well, rickety is, is kind of a generous assessment of what the camper looked like. To me, as a little kid, it looked like Frankenstein's monster. It was this huge thing that he built out of wood and sheet metal, and it weighed 14,400 pounds. And if you know anything about campers, that's about 12,000 pounds too many. (laughs) So the thing just broke down literally 61 times over the course of a year. And partly it was because we were traveling over the Pan American Highway, which is this highway system, not really a unified highway, but a highway system that connects the capitals of Latin America. But in 1973, it wasn't all the way completed. Parts of it were really damaged by an earthquake that had happened in Nicaragua. So it was a real unknown. And my parents literally didn't know anything other than what had been in a National Geographic article 
years before. But, you know, logic wasn't really the motivator. The catalyst was this tragedy, and mm-hmm. they just needed to drive. So now you were, what you say, six years old with your little sister, and your dad would, as you wrote in the book, literally leave you and hitchhike to the nearest town when, you're, when the camper would break down? My most vivid memories were literally on the side of the road of the Pan American Highway, and we would have to, you know, put out flares and wave down drivers to avoid hitting it. Then we would eventually, he would get whatever part he needed to kind of limp into the next town, and then we'd go to a mechanic shop. And while he would be under the truck fixing it, my mother and sister and I would explore the neighborhoods. And these would be working class, real neighborhoods in 1970s Central America and South America. Was this a jolly family time or was it like you were all captives and your dad was this driven, struggling person looking to escape? What did you think of your dad at this time? Six years old, left in a ramshackle, monster, Adams family camper van in the middle of nowhere. It was scary. We just wanted to be quiet and help him and, you know, hope that it all worked out. We missed my grandmother, my aunt and uncles, my friends in like first grade back in Banks, Oregon. So it was traumatic. But as the time progressed, we got a little bit more confident. And, you know, despite the tense situations that we were in, because this was at the start of a lot of civil wars and disruptions in South America, The beauty of the continent really seeped into, and I learned how to speak Spanish, and honestly, the people of Latin America were so good to us. They sensed that we were this Steinbeckian family, and we were in trouble. And people along the way, ordinary people, not wealthy people, not well-traveled people, took us in and protected us and Mm. gave us food and took care of us when we were sick, and one time I had malaria. So even though it was tragic circumstances, it was actually a beautiful experience in the end and one that really became our family healing process. There's civil wars going on. Your family is using an old National Geographic as your guidebook. What were the border crossings like back then? You went through a lot of borders to get to Bolivia. We did, uh, about 13 of them, and they were probably the most intense. We had very little money on this trip. It wasn't well thought out or planned or financed. So there's lots of bribes involved in crossing borders in South America and Central America. And my dad just couldn't pay them. And he's also really stubborn and didn't want to. So literally, I would have to kind of talk him out of jail. And it was just, you know, having a little blue-eyed blonde girl who spoke Spanish come in and start crying and asking for her dad to get released from jail that they kind of banked on to be able to get us through these border crossings. Long story short, you didn't get to the end of the road down in Tierra del Fuego. The camper breaks down 61 times and, and finally it dies in Bolivia. Tell us about that. Well, we had actually picked up a hitchhiking wife of an American expat who lived in Bolivia, and she had an idea that maybe her husband would buy the rig, what was left of it, to help on a farm in eastern Bolivia. So that's eventually what happened, and my father was forced to sell it, and we abandoned the trip and moved on with life. But we never exactly knew what happened to this camper. My father just assumed it was burned up for um, scrap wood and used on the farm. But as time went by, you know, we sort of lost track. We didn't uh, keep in touch with that family. And my parents never really knew what happened. And I didn't really know what happened. And I realized that that camper was, was really the thing that kept me feeling safe when I was a child in this really turbulent, tense time. How long was this experience that you're living in this van before your father finally sold it? We were in it about 10 months. 
10 months. And then from Bolivia, basically, your dad said, okay, let's go home and put things back together. Well, actually, we flew on to South Africa where his parents lived, and he started over again. He was a a big believer in sort of uh, burn-down do-overs. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Teresa Bruce, and uh, she's the author of The Drive, Searching for Lost Memories on the Pan-American Highway. Her website is teresabrucebooks.com. Now, Teresa, 30 years later, you decide to do the trip again uh, with your husband and your dog, and you retrace the route. So why did you do this, and how did that journey go? It was motivated because I was just at a real transition point in life. I had just gotten married. I was really stressed out and traveling a lot for work, and my parents had pulled up stakes and moved again. And something from my past just kept bothering me. I just wanted to know where my childhood home was. Was it still out there? Because it was sort of all tangled up and losing my little brother and just wondering, you know, could I do a trip, an epic road trip like that, and find this only thing that had made me feel safe? And so after 9-11, when I, I met my husband, we decided we would give it a shot. We would retrace the journey using my father's 30-year-old maps and my mother, who had kept this little pink journal. It was more mm. like a ship's log of everywhere we had stopped along the way. So we set out and sold everything we owned and gave up two careers and did what I bet you all of your listeners <laughs> would love to do, which is just, you know, say goodbye and take a huge road trip. And how long was this road trip? How many months? Ours lasted a year because we were able to uh-huh. sort of complete the trip for my parents and make it all the way down to, the, got to the end, end of the road, of the yeah. end of the longest in highway Ushuaia. in the world. You mentioned in the book that you were impressed, even as a six-year-old girl, you, you remember the warmth and friendliness of complete strangers. Were you able to find anybody again that was part of your epic adventure when you were a little child, when you went back 30 years later? The amazing thing is, yes, we were. My mother had written down sometimes just first names or the names of the children that we had played with, but she knew the places. So it would be, you know, Hmm. Leon, Nicaragua, or San Salvador, El Salvador. And so we got the idea, you know, I want to try and find these people because honestly, without them, we wouldn't have made it. So the first one that we found was this dentist in El Salvador who had taken care of my little sister who had fallen out of the camper and broken her front teeth. I mean, this guy literally saved us and was so good to us and his wife, Yolanda, and his children. We stayed with them for a week. And so when we went on the second trip, I had his address and we tried to find it. And we ended up hiring a cab and we followed him through the congested streets of San Salvador, El Salvador, which was at the time a pretty dangerous place. And we pulled up to this house and this old gentleman opens the door And he doesn't recognize me at first, but I showed him my mother's journal, and he read the writing Mm. of his late wife, Mm. whom had inscribed the journal. Tears welled up in his eyes, and he said, Teresita, look what has come back to me. And it was just amazing. So we had these beautiful moments of reconnection that, in the end, were more important to me than finding the camper. It became clear on this trip that that was really what I needed to do was to thank these people that had shown such kindness to travelers. Oh, my goodness. Teresita. I think that's something that, that occurs to me a lot of times is in our travels, we can be providing memories to the people we connect with, the local people, and you could come back. I've come back literally decades later and been impressed by how vividly people would remember my visit. And I think that kind of invigorates the whole thing. We are giving them memories. They're giving us memories. There's just this beautiful kindness of strangers. 
I know part of the agenda for your trip, Teresa, was to find the camper. You went back to Bolivia. Did you ever find the old camper? Wow. I shouldn't probably tell because it might ruin the ending. But we did, actually. We were able to find the camper, and it was a really terrific part of sleuthing and detective work. We were trying to go back on old maps and letters (laughs) and emails, and we eventually connected with the woman whose husband had bought the truck, and she still lived there. (laughs) And again, she was someone who, when she heard my voice, it catapulted her back 30 years, and she Mm -hmm. remembered everything. She even remembered the catalyst for the trip and how sad my mother and father were at the Mm. time, which Mm -hmm. was sort of the end of the journey. My goodness. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Teresa Bruce. Her book is The Drive, Searching for Lost Memories on the Pan-American Highway. And Teresa, uh, while your family did not make it to the end of the road 30 years ago, you did make it to Tierra del Fuego this time. Tell what it was like to finally reach the end of the road and then... uh, You threw your gun into the water. I'm just curious about that. Well, the gun was probably the only really bad decision we made on this whole entire trip. And that was just sort of, I let the news and paranoia kind of infiltrate my better sense. And I I decided that we would hide a gun in the floorboards of the camper for protection. And it was a really foolish decision, not only because it's completely illegal in Latin America, But also because it just made me not the open kind of appreciative traveler that I really am. So this had been an albatross. And every border crossing, I was so terrified that it would be discovered. And of course, we never had any occasion to use it. People treated us with as much kindness and love as the first trip 30 years earlier. But when we reached the end of the road, I realized, what am I going to do with this? You can't just go to a police station and say, oh, you know, I have this illegal gun that I need to turn in. And at the same time, we didn't want to sell the camper and just leave it there for someone to find. So when we reached the very end, the Beagle Channel in Ushuaia near Tierra del Fuego, I decided we would just open a bottle of Argentinian champagne, celebrate the arrival at the end of the world. And I pitched that gun way deep into the water where it sank and has rusted into oblivion. And that just finally closed the chapter and was sort of the end of that. Teresa, this is an epic journey. And of course, your father only had his National Geographic magazine. And as somebody who dedicates so much energy to writing guidebooks, it breaks my heart. But you made a point to do this thing unplugged. You could have used GPS along the way and all sorts of technical innovations to make the journey smoother and and more efficient. Why did you do it with no GPS and no technological support? I had been a producer, and I had been one of those uber-organized people that studies everything in advance and makes her itinerary, and I stick to it, and I have agendas. And it had just made me this, like, tense person. And I, I saw this as a chance to kind of throw that to the wind and let the experience just settle in my bones and really experience it in present tense. And so we just decided to do that. And plus, you know, planning and doing a year-long road trip on the Pan American Highway, even in 2003, takes 100% of your concentration. So I wanted to, you know, make good decisions and enjoy it and, and relate to the things I was seeing rather than be checking whether I'm, you know, running out of time and whether I needed to have done this detour or whether I should have checked out this restaurant. I didn't want to have those distractions. And you had the luxury of lots of time, so you didn't need to be worried about the best connection and all that sort of thing. And and from reading through your book, it seems that in a way, 
you were better able to connect with the people you encountered because you weren't in some parallel universe with all sorts of high-tech gear. I mean, you told a fascinating story about meeting someone, I believe, in Nicaragua where they hardly knew what to do with your iPhone. Right. You know, so we we thought we were being very unplugged, right? No GPS, no cell phones, no apps telling us what to do. But that is nothing as unplugged as this scene that happened in Chapter 20. We were getting lost. That's an inevitability when you don't overprepare. And I did have a guidebook and I saw, well, there's this place that we could camp, but I don't know where it is. We're lost. Maybe I'll get someone from that campground on the phone. And I did have an emergency satellite phone. So I tried it out and I got the resort on the phone and I went into a, we were lost in in the mountains of northern Nicaragua, which is very remote. And there were a group of farmers in a field and they were, they were digging. And I thought, well, I'll hand this to them and maybe there can be a connection and I can get directions. So what I wrote when I was describing this later was this, it is a good plan, but none of the men in the group will touch the phone. I try the only woman instead. She looks at me as though I have passed her a hand grenade. She stares at the phone in her palm as if deciding whether to fling it into the rocky field in front of us. Then she tentatively presses the keypad into her forehead. When nothing happens, she turns it around the other way and presses it to her forehead again. I realize she has heard of phones but never used one. Wow. So, you know, it's all a continuum, right? (laughs) Talk about getting off the beaten path to encounter somebody who lives in such a different, different world. Teresa Bruce is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She's the author of a gripping memoir about her two road trips across Central and South America. Her book is called The Drive, Searching for Lost Memories on the Pan American Highway. She posts photos from both trips on her website, teresabrucebooks.com. It just seems like something very fundamental about this is just not being too committed to plans and just having faith that plans can be kind of a springboard. I had been an over-planner, an over-preparer, so it was hard for me to let go. I'm not going to lie. It was hard to let go of that urge to sort of know every detail. But it wasn't really until we were in Peru when I realized, you know, this trip has nothing to do with my plans, and and no one will ever judge me, and I won't judge myself about whether I stuck to an itinerary. But it would be a shame to waste the opportunity to really be in the moment and present tense and learn from the experience. And part of that is just saying yes. You know, yes, I will take this chance. Yes, I will take that detour. Yes, I will look up that friend of a friend of a friend that someone said lives in this small town and make that connection. And that's when your experience really changes you. And that's the beauty of travel, particularly a road trip. You know, we've all flown places where where you arrive someplace halfway across the world, but you're still in your old skin. But when you take the time and you unplug and you look at maps, I mean, physical maps that you open up and you can say, hey, that road leads into the mountains and that road might take me past a lake and this road, that town, I don't even know what it is. What could they have done there? What could they grow there? That sort of exploration happens when you unplug and just allow yourself to be in the moment and experience travel. Teresa Bruce, you have just defined for me in such an eloquent way the difference between a tourist and a traveler. Thank you for writing The Drive and sharing what really is an inspirational experience. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Stretching away. 
Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac kaplan Wilner. We had help this week from NPR in Washington. There's more online at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.